Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of Everyone Hates Moscow, a not-quite-weekly podcast on Russian politics, culture, and society. Um, we understand that we have very blatantly violated our not-quite-weekly promise. I think it's been two, maybe three weeks since our first episode, but we've had some changes to the show. Um, one of our original co-hosts, Kevin Rothrock, has left us and uh, to pursue solo work. Uh, meanwhile, we have a new addition, Dasha Litvinova, we're very excited to announce, is going to be our new permanent third co-host, so you can look forward to her being here with you every not-quite-week. Um, anyway, let's get right into it today. We're going to try to be more time-expedient. Uh, the topics for today are going to be um, Facebook releasing data on uh, Russian ad, ad buys during the 2016 election. Um, I think our first story for today is going to be about Russian airline Aeroflot battling discrimination allegations, and, and that'll be Dasha's first segment. Uh, our special guest discussion is going to focus on the adventures of Mr. Steven Seagal in Russia, and that'll feature Financial Times correspondent Max Seddon. But more on that later. Let's get down to the news. Uh, so as I said, there's been a lot of a really sexist discussion about Aeroflot flight attendants recently, culminating in an article this week that says, Only attractive women work for Aeroflot. Dasha, what is the backstory here, and, and why are we doing this? Well, I mean, literally, there's an article out there with a headline saying that only pretty women work for Russian Aeroflot. It was published by Russia Beyond the Headlines. It's a state-founded English-language outlet owned by the infamous RT. Uh, it comes out a month after two flight attendants won a discrimination lawsuit against the airline, actually. They accused Aeroflot of discrimination over age, weight, and looks, and claimed that the airline demoted older women wearing clothes larger than a Russian size 48, which is an international large. The two flight attendants, Evgenia Magurina and Irina Yerusalimskaya, were size 48 themselves, and it wasn't a problem at all until last summer when they were photographed, measured, and taken off the better-paid long-haul international flights and also stripped of bonuses. So they took Aeroflot to court. Uh, interestingly enough, the company didn't deny having regulations that outline clothing sizes for their flight attendants. Instead, they insisted that these regulations are more than justified because overweight flight attendants may not be able to move around the plane, their weight costs cost the company extra money and fuel expenses, and also passengers prefer to see young and slender flight attendants, so Aeroflot is merely trying to live up to their customers' expectations. So at first, Magurina and Yerusalimska lost the case, but they won the appeal. And in the end, judges ruled that regulations were discriminatory just last month. They ordered the company to abolish these regulations, which uh, we don't know yet wh whether it actually happened. But a month later, this week, uh, there's this article. Um, I mean, at first, when I saw the headline, I thought that maybe it's it's a way for Aeroflot to, to make amends, you know, by saying that only pretty women work for the company, including those of larger sizes and ages. Um, it would be the perfect way to make peace with the women. You know, look at this lead. Russian airlines, more commonly known as Aeroflot, won two international awards last week. There's no doubt that this success would not be possible without the fleet's gorgeous flight attendants. So it would be perfect 
chance to move on to saying that, you know, including those women of larger sizes, but no, it doesn't say anything like that. Instead, it defends Aeroflot's initial stand on the case, that flight attendants are the face of the company, clients like to look at pretty women, you know, therefore rewarding them for looking a certain way is rationalized. Here's a quote that sent me literally over the edge. Aeroflot carried out a poll among its clients, and it turned out that 92% of respondents agree that flight attendants should be attractive, while 82% said carrying extra weight might affect the way they act in emergency situations. It's a national airline, the article goes on to say. The flight attendants represent Russia, so their appearance and attitude could influence tourist impressions of the country before they arrive. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, well, I, I have a few thoughts as a regular foreigner flight fl flyer on Aeroflot. Um, I have. I, I don't think I've ever seen the face of the company. Yeah. W would you be bothered by? Well, no, no, no. I mean, I, like, sorry. Right, so they're claiming the face of the company. These flight attendants. Uh, wrong. Wrong. Here are my impressions of Aeroflot. Otherwise, a fine airline. I really like them. But uh, I, I, I note the lack of any organization boarding the flight. Uh, the total shit show for overhead storage once you get on the flight. Uh, the lack of whiskey on a on a flight from Moscow to New York. Uh, yeah, that's a very. Fair point. Uh, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, I, I that bothers me. Uh, and then and then the final one gets me every time is that the every Russian on the plane seems to clap if the pilot lands the. I mean, when the pilot lands the plane, <laughs> as if this is something that that is unexpected or or, or marvelous. And he's like, congratulations, <laughs> you've done your job and you didn't kill us. Um, so it's very that, that's that's always been quite concerning for me as as a foreigner. Um, but but staying on topic, why why do you think this article happened in the first place? So I have sources, uh, you know, familiar with the situation who helped those two women defend themselves in court, and they claim that after the whole court case scandal started to unravel, it made so so many sort of waves in the press and attracted so much of international attention that Aeroflot had to launch its own media campaign sort of defending the company. Um, I was told that they, they were basically paying for articles in the press, uh, articles painting them as, you know, the good guys. And I wasn't personally, I wasn't yet able to confirm this myself, but that's what my sources say. And there were indeed some weird articles about the flight attendants that sued Aeroflot. For instance, at some point, the state-owned Rosiska Gazeta actually accused them of being U.S. agents on payroll, dispatched to discredit Russia's flagship airline and Russia in general. <laughs> okay, well, uh, thanks for the fake news, Dasha. We're, uh, we're going to move on from, from Aeroflot. Um, so yeah, the, the, our, our, our weekly InfoWar update... Uh, the biggest news to come out of the info war this week, I think, has to be Facebook's statement on Monday. Uh, and if you didn't see this statement, it, it detailed the results of, of Facebook's own internal investigation into Russian interference during the 2016 election. Uh, so it had, it had some really interesting data that I just want to quickly run through. The first data point is that 10 million people saw a Russian-made advertisement at least once. But before freaking out about that too much, uh, we need to break down these numbers even further. And again, according to Facebook's own investigation, just 44% of these ads were delivered before the November 8 election. In other words, only 44% of them were seen at a time that it even mattered. 56% uh, were not seen until after the election. Um, Facebook added a few more findings a day later, um, I, I think probably in response to, to discussion that uh, perhaps Facebook was somehow complicit in, in Russian interference efforts by giving Russians access to, to a commercially available service of targeting ads at, at, at what are considered to be vulnerable or sympathetic audiences. 
Um, and anyway, so 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 Facebook did more analysis and came out and updated the statement and said uh, only one percent of the identified ads even used these features, these advanced targeting features, uh, to target people who interacted with or liked Russian-created ads or pages. So basically, if I'm if I'm understanding this correctly, the idea that Russia somehow masterfully targeted sympathetic Americans falls apart. And it's an important it's an important point to address because. Now there's been reporting that former CIA uh, employees have been talking a lot about how Russia must have used somebody's data or hacked somebody's data or used a platform to achieve great effect. So, so the main takeaways that I have from this data is that uh, great effect is in question, and their targeting uh, their targeting competencies are also in question. Um, but anyways, Alexi, you're you're working on a little experiment right now to to test this ad targeting platform. Uh, so why don't you tell us about that? How's it going? Uh, okay, so my favorite bit from the Facebook statement that they made on Monday, um, which is in the form of the frequently asked questions, and one of the questions uh, uh, has been apparently asked uh, so many times that the Facebook uh, was compelled to answer it. Uh, the question is, as, um, as it appears on Facebook website, is weren't some of these ads paid for in Russian currency? Why didn't your ad review system notice this and bring the ads to your attention? Now, let's pause here for a minute. So, uh, an American company, uh, an, an international company based in the United States is offering services around the world. Uh, and pe naturally, people are uh, paying for these services in the respective currencies of the country they're living in. Uh, I, am one of, uh, I am one of Facebook's regu regular customers, and I'm regularly buying ads on, on Facebook for my own uh, project that I'm running. Uh, and apparently, I am now suspect... Uh, because I am simply paying in the only uh, legal tender that I'm uh, that is available to me, uh, e uh, which is Russian rubles. Uh, so I did a little, little ex experiment. I started a new uh, Facebook page called Russians for Common Sense, uh, and I literally posted a, a single post on it, uh, which says, uh, "This is a political message uh, uh, on Facebook, uh, paid for with Russian rubles, and uh, targeted at, at users in the United States of America." Uh, and and uh, I, I was going to see what happens. Uh, uh, will Facebook approve it? Uh, how many people will I reach? Because I actually, I, I picked every single quote, uh, divisive issue, unquote, uh, uh, in, in the United States, like gun control, LGBT, far left politics, <laughs> right wing politics, uh, Sean Hannity, uh, Huffington Post, people interested in, in everything I could think of, about 100 different interests. So the estimated uh, reach uh, uh, of this post, Facebook tells me, will be uh, 205 million people in the United States, uh, and uh, I'm I'm prepared to invest about 25 bucks in the in, in the ruble equivalent. Holy shit! Serious money. Yes, 25 bucks. Uh, and do you have any idea what yeah. the damage you can do? <laughs> Sorry. Um, but. It's been full 24 hours now, and my ad is still pending pending review. Um, well, it's never happened to me before because I I've bought dozens of ads on Facebook, and it would normally paid for by in rubles, uh, and uh, it would normally take about 30 minutes to an hour max. But nothing's happening. I mean, there's a lot of uh, obviously obviously the Facebook censors are looking at this and have no idea what to do with you. Yeah. Losha, I'm curious, is there like a time frame for this? Like, is there, is there something, some disclaimer out there saying that we're gonna review your, your application within, I don't know, a week no. max or 
10 days max or none whatsoever okay. none whatsoever so it could be infinity well i mean now now that i think they're under all this all this scrutiny they're probably they're probably scrutinizing any russian facebook ad request really really heavily right now and i i bet that they're just confused about you maybe i'm wrong but, uh, it says, we've received your order. We are reviewing your advert to make sure that it meets our advertising policies. This usually takes less than 15 minutes. It's been 24 <laughs> hours now on Facebook. What is going on? Have you sent them any messages? Yeah, can you complain to someone about this? Uh, maybe, yeah. That's yeah. Uh, that's what I'm going to do now when, when, when we wrap up. Because it's, it's, it's getting ridiculous now, really. <laughs> being, being a Russian on Facebook is hard these days. Yeah. I feel the pain. Um... All right, cool. Well, thanks, Sasha, for that. Um, I, I, I'm going to preach for a second. I'm going to preach, all right? Um, and uh, I know I know that it's not realistic for us to hope that this is the last time we ever talk about the great info war on this podcast, but I want to go on record and say that I'm really fucking tired of it. Um, but luckily, I found my new thing while watching this new Ken Burns documentary on the Vietnam War, uh, and I've got the clip, and we're going to play it right now. Uh, it's a quote from George Kennan, the founder of America's Cold War Containment Doctrine, testifying that everyone is overreacting to things, uh, specifically the Vietnam War. But we can use it in many cases now. Um, so from now on, as much as possible, this is going to be my standard reply to uh, Russian info war hysteria. Let's hit it. We would do better if we really would show ourselves a little more relaxed and less terrified of what happens and not jump around like an elephant frightened by a mouse. Every time these things occur. Yep, George Kennan, guys, George Kennan. Uh, but the reason the reason I want to bring that up is because I, it's I'm I'm increasingly concerned about the the end results of all this this discussion about Russian influence operations. Um, I think that we're starting to see this idea that that you know, we saw this with the Morgan Freeman video like two weeks ago that the United States is at war and we must take drastic measures to defend our information space against Russian influence. But the problem is, is that I have is, is the only way to defend against that is through regulation of the information space, right? So basically, we have the situation where everybody, everybody is calling for some sort of censorship and just because it's deemed as censoring bad things. But we don't do that. That's not, that's not what we do in a free society. And, and it, what's even more concerning is that, the re, that, that we're not being shown exactly why we need to give up Get, to cede this ground to the government. So the House Intelligence Committee, which is which is conducting this investigation into Russian interference, has 3,000 ads that it says are of Russian origin, but it won't show us what the ads are. So we can't independently sit there and judge, was, were these ads dangerous enough to warrant an invitation to bring military state, state intervention into the information space to deem what is safe and what is legitimate information and what is not? I believe, I have believed, and I will continue to believe that, that, is, that, that that's not worth it. But we really have no way to know. Uh, end preaching. Uh, Dasha. Amen. Let's, uh... Yes, yes. Let's just take a quick musical break while we get our guest on the line. So stay tuned. All right, everyone, thank you for sticking with us, and welcome back to Everyone Hates Moscow. I'm happy to introduce Max Seddon, Financial Times correspondent, who uh, has an unhealthy love affair with Steven Seagal. Welcome, Max. Welcome. I, I wouldn't say that it's unhealthy. It's more a, uh, a, a burgeoning professional uh, sideline. <laughs> how, how often do you write about Steven Seagal on Twitter, or uh, I mean, professionally even? 
Uh, professionally, I've only ever done it the one time back uh, a little over two years ago, back when I was at, at BuzzFeed, my, my colleague, Rosie Gray, who is now the White House correspondent for, for The Atlantic, uh, and I, we did the story that uh, we, we both still wonder today if we could have gotten away with it at uh, our current <laughs> places of employment, where we spent uh, six months um, on and off uh, writing a 4,000-word investigation of why Putin is friends with Steven Seagal. And we discovered many interesting facts along the way, including the time that Putin asked Obama to make Steven Seagal the honorary consul of Russia in California and Arizona, which is where Steven Seagal lives. <laughs> uh, in the, you, you may remember the last meeting that uh, they had at the GA in Locker and where they were sitting around looking very sad after the meeting. And it was their last meeting for two years. It was this very meeting where Putin suddenly sprung this on Obama. There was a time that Steven Seagal was a fixer for a congressional delegation in Russia and he tried to take them to Chechnya to party with Ramzan Kadyrov, the brutal dictator of Chechnya. And uh, so we, we spent a long time doing this story and uh, we, we couldn't get anything out of Steven Seagal. We spent you know, six months sending requests to Steven Seagal, to his lawyers, to his agent, to everybody. And then right as the story was about- he's, a, he's actually very difficult to get in touch with. Well, he's, he's, he's an international man of mystery, uh, and, he, and he travels a lot. So you may have noticed that Steven Seagal wears, wears two watches. And one thing I discovered fairly recently was why this is, is because he travels so much that he doesn't really know what time it is. And so he has one watch on local time, and the other watch is permanently on L.A. time. Oh, wow. And so, so uh, we sent Steven Seagal's lawyers a long list of questions right before the piece came out and to see if they had anything they wanted to respond to. And one of them was, I called the Dmitry Piskov. This was back uh, in, in the good old days of 2015, back when you could just call up uh, Putin's spokesman and he would always pick up the phone and he would always say some stuff. He would never say no comment. He would always give you stuff you could use. Uh, he almost never does this anymore, sadly. And he gave me about four minutes where he answered all my questions about Steven Seagal. And one of them was, <laughs> yeah, I know this it's been a while since uh, Putin and Steven Seagal last got together. When's the next meeting going to be? Are they going to hang out? Like, what's, what's going on? And he said, well, you know, the president has a very busy schedule. He doesn't have any meetings planned with Steven Seagal in the near future. And uh, I don't think that there are going to be any anytime soon either. And so we, we wrote to Steven Seagal's lawyers and we said, hey, you know, Peskov says, that uh, Putin is too busy to, to meet with you. What is your response to that? Now, I, I, I don't know for sure to this day. It could be a total coincidence, but uh, I like to think not. Uh, before the article even managed to come out, almost immediately, Steven Seagal suddenly shows up in Moscow for the first time in a very long time. People start posting, post, posting photos of him <laughs> on social media in the Ritz-Carlton, which is right across the street from the Kremlin. And uh, I, spent, I, I may have spent an evening hanging out in the Ritz-Carlton, uh, seeing if Steven Seagal would show up, and then I realized how much the coffee was, and I got out of there. <laughs> and most <laughs> people let me expense this. <laughs> so then Steven Seagal, um, the article came out, uh, neither the Kremlin nor Steven Seagal actually denied that any of it was true. And uh, Steven Seagal then uh, seemingly did not leave Russia for the next six months. He, he went to the May Day Parade on Red Square where you took a selfie with him. Yes. He, yeah, he went to, uh, he, 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 he was like Udmurtia uh, doing Aikido master classes. He, and it, it was quite clear that he was asking for an audience. He went, he, he went to Yakutia, I think, in that time. That's when he went to the diamond mines. He was like doing some stuff from, from, from El Rosa. He went to some 
weapons fairs, and uh, clearly he was asking for an audience. And then about six months later, it was um, on my birthday, as a matter of fact, I, I wake up and I see the news that Putin has toured the new aquarium in Vladivostok, accompanied by Pamela Anderson and Steven Seagal. And so I, I texted Rosie, my, my colleague, and I said, you know, you know, you went to journalism just like me. We want to have impact, do stories that you know really affect people's lives and uh, can really drive change. Like, look at this. Yeah, we did this. <laughs> and um, congratulations. And ever Max. since then, Steve Seagal, yeah, he shows up once or twice a year, spends an extended period of time in Russia. And uh, as, as we learned last November, he was spending this time just constantly asking the Kremlin for a Russian passport. And when, when they finally gave him the passport in, in November, uh, Putin's spokesman was asked, you know, why are you giving Steven Seagal a Russian passport? And he said, well, firstly, because he keeps asking for it all the time. <laughs> And the, apparently, one, one thing I learned was that they, they actually offered it to him a few years ago, but he, he turned it down because they wanted him to give up his U.S. citizenship, uh, and he didn't want to do that. Uh, but now he's got three passports because he also picked a, one up from Serbia when, when he was uh, kind of asking for, for his Russian passport. Maybe he was playing hard to get. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> and, um, do you know why, why would he want a Russian passport in the first place? Well, Russia has basically become, uh, it's, it's not the only country that's like this, but it's probably the foremost one, where uh, if you are a washed up celebrity from, from the West, it is this kind of elephant's graveyard where they all go to die. And uh, so Stephen Seagal isn't the only <laughs> Jeff, example of this. Je let's run down the list. So we have, we have Jeff Monson, right? Who else, who else has come over here? Uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme. Yes. A lot, of it, a lot of Italian disco singers from, from the 80s, I think. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but the thing about Russia compared to other countries is uh, the, the ones who Putin seems to be particularly attracted to are martial artists and action movie stars because uh, Putin has... A, we, we actually, for, for, for that story, we, we interviewed Fiona Hill, who's now the White House uh, National Security Council Senior Director on Russia, and, and she made a very good point that, you know, this, is, that this uh, like speaks Putin's whole, whole image. And uh, he, he basically he plays an action hero himself on TV. That was uh, like the whole idea when he came in to distance him from Yeltsin, that he was you know, running around, you know, diving, looking for M4I, uh, taking his shirt off, riding a horse in Siberia. And uh, so, so by, by surrounding himself with celebrities, uh, it's, it, it, it reinforces the point that Putin is the biggest celebrity of all. And so they first started this in 2004 when they totally defanged uh, the parliament and they put a bunch of celebrities in there. And uh, the issue with, with Russian celebrities is even the most popular Russian celebrity, like, like Filip Kirkorov, the like, cheesy pop singer, or like Timothy. This yeah. is something that anyone who works in uh, marketing will tell you. In, in Russia, they, they only have, you do focus groups, they only have you know, maybe at best like 50% approval rating. Mm -hmm. But if you're like Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, or Bruce Willis, uh, who um, actually appeared in a bunch of uh, Russian bank ads or a bank that subsequently yeah. collapsed, you have like a 95% approval rating. So, so uh, <laughs> it's, it's also a chance to make a lot of money. It's a bit like, you know, a loss in translation when Bill Murray is doing his Japanese whiskey commercials. And uh, so uh, the thing about Steven Seagal is that even, even compared to, to Jean-Claude Van Damme, who, like Steven Seagal, he was a big action movie yeah. star in the 80s and early 90s, then his, his career 
tanked, but he had a very good sense of humor about it, and he even made a movie where it was just all about how washed up he was, and it was him <laughs> laughing at himself. Uh, Steven Seagal is uh, probably one of the least self-aware men on, on the face of, of the planet, and the last movie, if I'm not mistaken, that he did that actually made theaters in the U.S. was uh, Half Past Dead in 2002, which is uh, <laughs> Steven Seagal and Ja Rule co-starring in uh, a movie that I uh, must confess that I have not seen. But um, you have to remember that Putin himself, uh, um, Steven Seagal, his thing is Aikido. He claims to be the first um, foreigner to have ever opened an Aikido dojo in Japan, which his uh, ex-wife, who, uh, whose family actually uh, ran, ran the dojo, said that is uh, completely not true. <laughs> and Putin is into judo. And, um, I remember Piskov told me that Putin has definitely seen several Steven Seagal movies, and and the, and the rumor always was that Putin and his his judo buddies, who are all oligarchs now, that they were all big Steven Seagal fans, and wow. they when when Steven Steven Seagal he just sort of started randomly showing up, like many in in about like 2011, like many washed up celebrities, and even ones who aren't that washed up. He was part of, um, you remember there, there was this thing back in 2010, 2011 called the, uh, the Federation Foundation, which is this incredibly shady fake charity that, that flew in uh, um, Robert De Niro, uh, Woody Allen, uh, and many other like A-list uh, um, Hollywood celebrities, as well as Steven Seagal. This was when, um, remember when Putin played the piano yeah. and sang, you know, Blueberry Hill. This was that same event, and Steven Seagal came for that. And he went and he partied with uh, Taiwanchik, who's one of uh, Russia's most famous mobsters, and he's wanted in the U.S. Yeah, and so uh, Steven Seagal, he also, um, um, he is of uh, Russian Jewish descent. Oh, uh, so so that is also where the excitement uh, come, um, comes to him. I, I did speak to one of Steven Seagal's like, kind of like fixers, one of the people who helped him uh, set up the meetings with Putin, this celebrity fixer guy. And, and he said, yeah, actually one of the things with Steven is, is that uh, it doesn't matter where he goes. He always says that he has family from there and he could go to like Africa. <laughs> be like, yeah, my grandmother was from Africa. But, but uh, it looks like he did have some, some Jewish relatives from, from Russia. And then, and then the other reason is, you know, he can't, he can't get movies made uh, anymore. He makes all his movies in, in uh, most of them in Asia these days. Mm -hmm. He's got one coming out where he fights Mike Tyson in some Chinese movie, which uh, is some action movie about uh, control of some 3G network <laughs> in, in China. <laughs> and there, yeah, and, and there are some um, uh, very tactfully shot scenes in the trailer of Mike Tyson fighting uh, Steven Seagal, who is a shot from those flattering angles. <laughs> possible so you can't see that Mike Tyson is still in good shape and Steven Seagal is uh, the size of Sydney Greenstreet in uh, Casablanca <laughs> and um, so uh, one thing you have to remember is that Steven Seagal his uh, he, 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 is, he is a Buddhist he's not only he's not just any Buddhist he is a uh, he is the reincarnation of a Tibetan god uh, you know, he, he, he got, you know some um, Tibetan Buddhists to like make him this uh, it's called the Tulku, and he uh, is his his current wife is from Mongolia, I believe, and he has wanted for many years to direct and star in a movie about the life of Genghis Khan, and uh, he he also wants to make Under Siege Three, the uh, the uh, long-awaited follow-up to his two biggest hits, Under Siege and Under Siege Two, which which are actually perfectly mm -hmm. serviceable action movies. Tommy Lee Jones I'm, I'm is, is in Under Siege. Under Siege One. Yeah. 
Yeah, and Under Siege 2 isn't isn't bad either. And and the the, the, the first Under Siege for like an early '90s action movie, it's it's genuinely very good. And uh, so Stephen Stephen has lots of great cheesy one-liners, and uh, there there are these uh, dramatic knife fights with Tommy Lee Jones. It's uh, quite quite explicitly <laughs> violent by by '90s standards. And uh, he, obviously, no one is going to give him you know even one million dollars in America to make these movies because no one's going to go see it. And so he he has been coming here. He's been asking the Kremlin. He's been asking oligarchs. He's been asking anyone who will listen to him to give him money so he can make these movies. Uh, and I mean, I mean, I mean, that's the thing. If it, it, um, um, I imagine this is just, this is me speculating here, but I imagine that on a psychological level, it must be quite difficult. If you were, it's it's. You know, easy to forget this now, but in the early mid '90s, Steven Seagal was one of, if not the highest-paid movie stars in in the world. His his movies were huge box office hits, like Under Siege and Under Siege Two and Above the Law, which he, which is the one where he says, "I'm going to take you to the bank, Senator, the blood bank." And uh, the one where he has to fight the evil Rastas, I can't remember what that one's called, but um, all his movies have a Titles with no more than three one-syllable words, so it's uh, easy to get them mixed up. Those are all huge hits, and then it uh, um, really unusually for movie star, everything just completely dried up really fast. And by you know, within, within you know, five six years, he was he was nobody. And that has got to be, you know, especially if you you are high on the life, uh, you, you are a big Hollywood movie star. That has got to be uh, something that, that psychologically is quite difficult to, to deal with. And so, like like a lot of these other stars, they, you know, they come they come here, and um, because because they like being loved. There's a difference to Steven Seagal is that you know, unlike you know, even John Claude Van Damme, maybe you know, he he just has no scruples whatsoever. He will meet with Ramzan Kadyrov. Uh, he, he even danced Aliskinka oh, for, for Ramzan Kadyrov, which kind of, it's, it's Aliskinka is this um, traditional Caucasian dance, and uh, when Steven Seagal does it, it kind of looks like a man in a bear suit being attacked by bees. <laughs> and it's in, in, in Russia, he's still a star. You know, he comes here in Russia, he's surrounded by journalists. Everyone is, 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 um, is, is, is writing, you know, Steven Seagal, like he went to, one of my favorite Russian Steven Seagal headlines was like Steven Seagal in Kamchatka was surprised by bear sex. <laughs> People, and and you know he's really treated like like royalty. He uh, he he was just in Kyrgyzstan. He met the prime minister of Kyrgyzstan. He, he endorsed the prime minister of Kyrgyzstan. Uh, uh, and you know for, for that really matters. Whereas in America, the only kind of reaction like that he ever gets is back a few years ago when he still had that reality show, Steven Seagal, Lawman, when he was a uh, sheriff's deputy in Jefferson Parish, Louisiana, uh, where, where the conceit of the show that was just basically cops, except when uh, they were arresting the perps, the perps would always go, holy shit, it's Steven Seagal. <laughs> and um, Russia is well, the he's place get where, where you can have that. Uh, for, the, for the Russia thing, right? I mean, well, he, well, he's had backlash for years. You have to understand, there's sort of like different levels of this. Um, uh, you know, Kanye West got you know some backlash when he did some some concert for like the Naz for Nazarbayev's granddaughter's wedding a few years ago. Uh, Hillary Swank, uh, she, she she went to one of um, uh, Kadira's birthday parties. I think Steven Seagal might have even attended. 
the same party, and uh, she fired her agent because it was such a huge um, scandal. But just Steven Seagal has never cared, and uh, now the Russia issue has become so inflamed in the Amer among the American public in a way that wasn't four years ago that when you see him going out, uh, you know, a Russian citizen, literally in front of the Kremlin on, on British TV with, with Piers Morgan for, for whatever reason and attacking the football players. Yeah, we have a clip. Let's, let's, let's play the clip for those who didn't see the interview. We're, just, we're, gonna, we're gonna play this real quick, right? There will be some people, uh, Stephen, who will be watching this interview He's saying that and think you sound like a great patriotic guy, but they'll also see you in Moscow and being very complimentary about Vladimir Putin, who many Americans believe fixed the US election, which is why Donald Trump became president. Uh, you know, how do you juggle the fact that a lot of your fellow Americans are pretty unhappy about this? Why don't we really be honest here, Pierce? Let's, let's be really honest. Uh, every country is involved in espionage. Every single country, the American spy, the British spy, the Russian spy, we all spy on each other. Let's be honest. However, for anyone to think that Vladimir Putin had uh, uh, anything to do with fixing the elections or even that the Russians have that kind of technology is, is stupid. Right. So, so Seagal, he came back in the headlines from, from this clip, actually. Um, and actually, something that I'm very excited and hope happens, George Foreman came out of the woodworks and challenged Steven Seagal on Twitter to a fight over these comments. Uh, the tweet was, Steven Seagal, I challenge you one-on-one. -on -one. I use boxing. You can use whatever. Ten rounds in Vegas. Said, and who's going to win that fight? Well, if I were Steven Seagal, you know, since he's the one challenged, you know, he, he has his choice of weapons, I would go for the George Foreman grill because then he can bring back his best line from Under Siege <laughs> 2, which is, nobody beats me in the kitchen. Yes. <laughs> um, okay, Max, so do we know if Steven Seagal ever met Putin or how many meetings did they have, if they had any? Uh, they met several times. The first time was... Um, in, actually, in 2003, uh, Steven Seagal, this was back when he was still, you know, something of a star. He was over here for the Moscow Film Festival, okay. and um, he and two aging European uh, pinup actresses uh, from many decades ago who were once sex symbols. I think it was Fanny Ardant and Gina Lollobrigida, um, but I, I, I might be wrong about that. They were the, the uh, actors chosen to go and meet Putin. But then it really all picked up again about uh, five, six years ago, and they have met, I think, three or four times since wow. then, but remember, these are just the meetings that we know about. Uh, one, one of the uh, many public services that we have gained from the story is that, uh, remember, we uh, know extremely little uh, you know, for any head of state uh, of, 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 of any major country about, about Putin's private life. Uh, we uh, only get these, these very strictly controlled uh, views on state TV, uh, and even then only occasionally into what this house looks like. But there is a uh, very informative Steven Seagal interview from 2013 where he talks about going to Putin's house. And uh, he says the first time that he went to Putin's house, this is implying that, you know, by 2013 he'd already been there, you know, several times, mm -hmm. he saw a life-size statue of Kano Jigoro, the founder of, of judo, in, in Putin's house. <laughs> and uh, that was when Steven Seagal realized, wow, this is really a guy after my own heart. Oh wow! Interesting. So, I, I, in in terms of you know, you know, are they passing 
secret messages to each other uh, or, or anything like that. Uh, you know, only only the, only the people I think of the NSA can really tell us. But uh, I'm I'm surprised that people on Twitter aren't making more of the conspiracy theory that Steven Seagal could really be the secret link uh, between between Russia and Trump because Steven Seagal is a huge Trump fan, and he uh, hangs out with Putin, and he also uh, hangs out uh, much more frequently with uh, Trump's uh, business partners in Russia, the Agalarovs, mm. uh, because he he advertises their watches. He was in fact at their house uh, just last week, or maybe this week, uh, the the latest time of many. So this is yeah, for all the conspiracy theorists and info warriors on Twitter. <laughs> I think I, I, I would definitely look into that. Okay. Uh, so Matt, going back to the red square thing, uh, why didn't you tell us the selfie story? How did you manage to get a selfie with the great and powerful Steven Seagal? Uh, all right. It was it was actually it was relatively straightforward. Uh, it was Victory Day, not May Day. Max said in uh, the Victory Day Parade, 2015. Uh, where everyone's walking off Red Square after all the tanks and, and soldiers have walked away. And uh, I'm with my buddy Pascal, a photographer, and there's just this dude, just some random guy, just standing clueless, lost in the middle of, of a square <laughs> that's right next to Red Square. And uh, my friend's like, oh, shit, that's Steven Seagal. And I'm like, no way. So I turn around, I say, it is Steven Seagal, and he's being mobbed by a bunch of Russians, and he just looks so lost and just clueless. He's not really doing anything. He's just standing there. And, some, and so we start moving towards him. The crowd is dispersed by his bodyguards, and they start to take him away. And I how many hand, bodyguards do you have? It was just uh, maybe one or two. And why, uh, why does Steven Seagal need bodyguards? Surely he just needs those bodyguards. Just some guy. <laughs> true, true. Anyway, his his minders. We'll call him his, how, how big was the crowd around? Like 15, 20 people. Like everybody who was okay. leaving Red Square, you know, uh, was was noticing that it was Steven Seagal, and and he was just being mobbed by people. And so and the, the, he starts being pulled away, and, uh, and I give Pascal my phone, and I yell, Mr. Seagal, wait! And it must have been the first English he had heard in some time, because he turned and he looked at me, and I was like, I, I want a selfie with you. And he didn't say anything. He just stared at me. And so I just, uh, I just went for it. I jumped over, put my arm around him. Pascal took the selfie, and I ran away. Uh, and, and that's all it took. And, and uh, that's the... Uh, that's the selfie story. I did end up in a Steven Seagal video two years later. Uh, he was doing an event with uh, with orphans, I think. Yeah, orphan orphan children uh, with Megaphone, one of one of Russia's three big uh, telephone operators, at the company's headquarters. And so I'm dispatched. I go there. I, I infiltrate, very Steven Seagal like. And my entire mission to for this thing is to try to get an interview with Steven Seagal. And he's up there being treated like royalty. All the kids are so excited. Um, he said, oh, man, I can't even remember the quote, but he said something absolutely amazing about, about like, choosing a weapon to fight. I, I don't know. I, I'll, I'll, never mind. But anyway, so I, we ended up filming this video. Uh, Max, what's it called? What's that thing called that the kids are doing where they uh, are in the YouTube videos and they all, they all stand still? Oh, oh, this is uh, last year's meme, um, the mannequin challenge. Yeah, the mannequin challenge. So, so we, we did a mannequin challenge video, and I'm just I'm just chilling there in the middle of this group of children and Steven Seagal, in the mannequin challenge video. Anyway, so the video ends, and oh, they also debuted a, a film commercial. No, no, just a, just a commercial, uh, for Megaphone with Steven Seagal using a translator. Uh, after he gets jumped in Moscow, we should link to that because it's a funny commercial. Um, and 
I tried to go for it. I, I got to his manager, and his manager ca- told me categorically that Steven doesn't do interviews. So that was it. A dream, a dream dashed. But Except for yeah. Pierce Morgan. Except for Pierce Morgan. There, there are so many wonderful moments that I interviewed that we haven't parsed. Uh, uh, <laughs> let's I mean, let's I mean, highlight one or the... two, and then we should wrap it up. Well, my, my favorite, this is something that really no one noticed, was that uh, he's, he's talking, he's uh, criticizing Colin Kaepernick and the NFL players protesting <laughs> against uh, uh, racial injustice and police brutality during the national anthem at football games. And uh, he says, you know, this is outrageous. Uh, I, I first my life on numerous occasions through the American flag. And I've, I, I, I spent a while wondering what exactly he's talking about here. And <laughs> then I remembered one of, one of the... Uh, one of my favorite, uh, although it's uh, admittedly a little known episode in uh, Stephen Seagal's biography, is uh, the time that he told everyone that he was uh, a special agent for the CIA. And, you know, if you were uncharitable, what you would say was that Stephen Seagal basically realized that you know how the CIA, the CIA will never confirm or deny that anyone was a CIA agent, that any operation was a CIA operation, that any asset was a CIA asset. Uh, what that means is that you can just make stuff up and they won't deny it because they can't confirm or deny anything. <laughs> and so he said that he was involved in all these CIA operations to rescue the Shah of Iran from the Iranian Revolution and uh, to, to help um, Mobutu Seiko and uh, one or two other dictators in the, in the, in the 70s and 80s. But um, I, it's just when, when are the other times that you know, he's, he's uh, risked his life for, for America? I guess they came as Special Agent Casey Ryback in uh, Under Siege and Under Siege 2. Nice. All right. So final question, some, a broad thought to, to end this with. You know him better than maybe anybody else living, Max. Um, is Steven Seagal misunderstood? Except for Putin. Except for Putin, yeah. Is he, is he misunderstood? Do we just um, not get Steven? I, I think I think uh, you have to understand that he's basically living in in a separate universe. Uh, this this is true for you. You read interviews with with a lot of celebrities. You look at the the, the whole fallout from uh, these are much more normal people than than Steven Seagal, the, like the Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie divorce. They they both sound like they're living on totally different planets to, to the rest of us. The same with the with the Kardashians and Steven Seagal is just a slightly more extreme version of that and uh he he just he just sees all these things a different way you know he he uh it's 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 a way of seeing the world where you can go on the pierce morgan show you know with with your russian passport in 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 front of that you got from putin personally in front of the kremlin and denounce black football players not being patriotic (laughs) enough not see how you know anyone might find that extremely strange all right well um well thanks max for coming on and and talking Stephen with us for, for almost 30 minutes. It's impressive. Um, we'll try to get you on the show. Just, I'm, 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 I hope you all enjoy this introduction to Seagullology. Yeah, 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 we'll definitely have to elaborate on some of the topics we've touched on here. Um, there will be a test at the end. Yeah. <laughs> all right, cool. Well, thanks, Max, and uh, thanks, thank you to the listeners for putting up with this. Um, we will be back with another episode in a little under two weeks, so uh, feel free to shoot us uh, topic suggestions on Twitter. Send us hate mail, whatever. Um, Dasha, any final words? Stay tuned. Stay tuned. All right. See you guys. Guys, guys. Yes. Guys, hold on, hold on, hold on. Oh, you want to say something? Um, A quick update. Here he is. Yeah, a quick update on my experiment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Actually, uh, as literally as we were listening to Max, uh, Facebook, 40 hours later, it finally approved my ad campaign. Uh, on Facebook and it's live now and the results are 
quite underwhelming. Okay, all right. How many people did you influence? No one. Uh, two. Two. Yes. Um, I've influenced two uh, users in the United States of America. And it cost me about... Uh, it cost me 134 rubles. Okay. Uh, so, so it's a bargain uh, at 67 like, rubles per American influence. So basically a dollar per person. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Alexei, for that update. We'll continue to monitor your experiment's progress, and uh, we'll do a full report next week. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all right, cool. Well, we'll see you guys then. Peace out. See you guys next week.